through our next steps, and so we're very thankful for that. If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to two passages of Scripture. I'm reading from the NLT, John chapter 8, and then we're going to go over to Romans chapter 5. John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 5. And as I have been apt to say from time to time, I think I'm going to do a little preaching today. A little preaching, a little teaching. Uh, Because I believe that by the end of this message that somebody will be set free from guilt. So, John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will be set free? And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. There's another passage in Romans that says all have sinned and come short. So we're all slaves to sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. So the question today is, why aren't you living like it? If the son has set you free, You are truly free, and yet we don't live like it. Romans chapter 5, verse number 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Everybody say thanks, Adam. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representative, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater. Everybody say, even greater. Even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. 
Are you dealing with guilt today? Can I suggest that you probably are? In fact, I found it kind of interesting that Dr. Guy Winch uh, did a study on people and worked with people and interviewed them and, and, and this study took a while and he came to the conclusion that every person alive deals with at least five hours of guilt every week. Five hours, nonstop. Five hours, somewhere in your week, if you add it all up at the end of the week, at least five hours of your week is spent with guilt. That's amazing to me. Because the Bible says if the Son has set you free, you are free. And yet we spend a minimum of five hours per week bound by guilt. In fact, in Scripture, the word guilt actually means to be bound. It means to be under obligation or subject to another. See, guilt is one of the strongest tools that the enemy uses to keep us where we're at. God has been trying to break off the shackles of our life the last several weeks. And some here today are still dealing with the shackle of guilt. I'm going to explain this a little bit. I'm not saying that you haven't sinned or that you have sinned, because I know you have. Because the Bible says it. I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned. And, and, and so I get all of that, but I'm talking about this thing called guilt. This thing that will eat you alive from the inside out. The thing that will paralyze your faith quicker than anything else is this concept of guilt. In fact, guilt tends to be the snooze alarm of our life. How many use a snooze on your alarm? How many use it more than five times every time it goes off? Some of you are lying. Here's what guilt does. Guilt, you hit the alarm and you never get rid of the guilt. It just pauses it for a little bit and then it springs back up. And then you hit it again and you bury it a little bit more until the alarm goes off and it springs back up. Guilt is something that is that eats at you and it lies dormant from time to time and then it springs up to attack and devour your spirit. And there are at least four sources of guilt. And I, I want to share those very quick. you. Quickly, the first source of, of guilt comes oftentimes from unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Um, I have dealt with parents of young people for really my, almost my entire ministry. Uh, I, I was a youth pastor for several years. We've got kids all over the country uh, that we that we ministered to through the years, and we dealt with their parents, and and some of their parents would come in and they would say, "I just don't get why my kid's doing this, and why they're dealing with this." And what we found out was a lot of times that young person was racked with guilt because they weren't meeting the expectation that was spoken by their parent because their parent is ex- because every parent I have found out thinks that their child is an angel. 
and do not, does not do anything wrong. And, and oh, they'll, they'll give mouth service to it. Yeah, my kid's not perfect. But when you confront a parent about something that their kid is, well, that's not my kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it might be. But we put blinders up for our kids. And when we put the blinders up, that raises our expectation of perfection in our kids. And when that expectation of perfection is broken, it's not just the parent that gets upset. It's the child that feels guilty for not meeting the expectation of what's been placed upon them. And if that goes on too long, now don't get me wrong here, young people, there is expectations to meet. There is GPAs to be met. Or you pay for your own insurance. I'm just... (laughs) Expectations. But can I tell you that my expectation level of these two boys does not dictate my love for these two. And so as a parent, we have to be very careful not to put unrealistic expectations on so that they don't feel guilty when they fail. I want them to fail as often as they succeed because if they're failing, it means that they're trying. And if they're failing at something, it means that they're working at something and they're bettering themselves because, but what ends up happening is we fail and because we fail the first time, we say, well, we can't do it. And then we feel guilty for even trying it and messing up. And God has been trying to say to somebody, stop worrying about your failures. In fact, I preach a message to succeed more, fail more. If you fail more often, you're gonna succeed more often because you're gonna try more often. And what ends up happening is I'm I'm going to pray five minutes a day all this week. And we get to Tuesday and blow it. And so from Tuesday till the next Sunday, we pester ourselves with guilt for not being able to make the commitment that we made. And it eats at us. And then we come back on a Sunday and we have to work through all of this guilt that says I'm really not any good and I'm really not worth it to get to the place where God can touch us and start the cycle all over again on Monday. Unrealistic expectations. The second one is inaccurate Bible teaching. Inaccurate Bible teaching. I have spent more time in the last seven years apologizing for my profession. Because the older I get, the the more I realize there's a whole lot of messed up teaching out there. And it causes people to feel guilty. We call it today in this age, church hurt. But here's what you have to understand about church hurt. Whether the preacher or the teacher means it or not, there have been some inaccurate teachings that have gone on. I'm sure that I have given some inaccurate teaching from time to time. And what ends up happening is is when we don't measure up to that teaching, For instance, there is a scripture, I will preach on it sometime, that God says, be ye holy for I am holy. And what does that holiness mean? And what does it mean to to be holy in the eyes of God? Holiness has nothing to do with what you can do. It has what he can do through you. 
but it has been taught that holiness is a man thing, that the man can become holy simply because he's holy, but that's not the way God was really saying it. He was declaring us holy because he's holy. He wasn't challenging us to become holy because he's holy. He was declaring us to be so because he is so. But that inaccurate teaching, and this is just one example, weighs down on us because then every time we think a bad thought, say a bad word, do a bad act, all of a sudden we realize we're not very holy and we're failing God and God has challenged us to be holy and now I've messed up again and now I'm guilty again. And it eats at me because I can't figure out how to do it right. Can I just tell you, Paul? The great apostle, the one that wrote most of the New Testament, dealt with the same thing. Read Romans 7 and 8. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and I do, don't do the things that I want to do when I know the things that I want to do are the things that God wants me to do, but then I don't do them? That encapsulate Romans 7 right there. Tim Sanders' condensed version. And we beat ourselves up with guilt because we haven't measured up to what the teaching was in church that said, be holy, for I am holy. And there's any number of those messages. Another source of guilt is past sin. I know when I've done something wrong. And I may hide it from somebody else, but I know it. And it becomes a cloud that hangs over me. And so then you sit in the midst of a service And the sweet presence of God is flowing. And we're sitting there going, yeah, but that's not for me because I know what I did. I know who I am. I know what I listened to. I know what I read. I know whose voice I was attuned to. I know what I saw. And so what's happening in the presence of God is not for me because I have messed up too bad. And I have hung a a sign above me, guilty as charged. And then there's one last source, and that is hurt. Somebody has hurt you, and you have taken the guilt of their actions upon yourself. And you have embraced that hurt and it has become a guilt to you. And it has begun to eat at you. And sometimes we end up blaming ourselves for something that somebody else said or did. And when we begin to blame ourselves, we're putting guilt upon our own shoulders. And what God is wanting to do today, he is wanting to walk up and down these aisles and he's wanting to just get that guilt off your shoulders. Why are you carrying something that's not yours to carry? Why are you letting something eat at you that's not yours to to eat? Why why are you doing things that you're, you're not designed for? Because we've embraced it. We have allowed it to come in and take a hold of us. Now, not all guilt is unhealthy there's some if 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 guilt will lead you in conviction to the lord guilt is good see 
I, I've used this analogy before, and I want to use it real quick again. I, I don't consider myself a mechanic on cars at all. Uh, I, I don't do anything. I'm lucky to change the windshield wipers. And, and, and so, uh, but what I have realized is that there are two systems within my vehicle that lets me know what's going on with my vehicle. The first one is the gauge, okay? I can watch from F to E and know that I need to do something about my vehicle when it gets close to E. And when I really push it, I know who to call to come and fill the car when I run out of it because I've ignored the gauge. There's gauges, there's a temperature gauge, there's a fuel gauge, and we can look at those gauges. There's a speedometer, usually really big right in the, I'm saying this for Randy, really in the, right in the, in the dash, there's a speedometer gauge that will tell you how fast or slow that you're going. If you weren't in Sunday school, you didn't understand that. Those are gauges. But then they have what I call the idiot lights. And those are the lights that come either blinking or they come on and it looks like a little oil tank or it looks like a battery or it looks like something. And when those lights come on, it usually means you have ignored the gauges and now the vehicle is trying to tell you something that's going on bigger and worse than if you would have paid attention to the gauge. And it's saying you better get in touch with a mechanic that can fix what's going on. That's what guilt can do. Healthy guilt can do. It is the gauge. There are some things that I don't do because my gauge tells me I shouldn't partake in it. There are some things that that I look at my gas tank in the spirit and I realize that I have expended some fuel, if you will, and I'm now at a half a tank. And if I'm at a half a tank, it means I've got to make way to the fuel up station so that God can pour back into me so that my engine doesn't run out. But when I ignore those gauges, he'll send the idiot lights and those things will, will, will play. And that is a guilt that says, listen, you're getting ready to crash. You're getting ready to blow up. You need to get to the mechanic to fix. And if, if you're listening to that kind of guilt, it's trying not to, it's not just, when those lights come on, it's not judging you. I mean, I call it an idiot light, but it's, he's really not, the car can't totally speak to me yet. I say yet. But, but, but when that light goes off, it's like, it's not judging me. Hey, listen, you didn't take care of the oil this month or this, this quarter or whatever it is. You, you, you didn't do that, so now I'm judging you for it. No, it's saying, hey, listen, if you don't take care of it, it's going to be a problem. And that guilt can be healthy if you don't take care of it. It can turn into a problem. But today you are in the mechanic shop and there is a God that wants to step into your life and open up the hood of your life and go in and fix whatever that is that needs to be fixed. But then there is unhealthy guilt. And it manifests itself in three ways really quick. Number one, it's silenced. We ignore it. We just shut it off. I read a story, I think it was 1957 or 58, something like that, and there was a plane that was going from Texas into Mexico amongst the hills down there. And uh, 
in the planes, you know, you get the little black box that gives the recording of the, the final, uh, of the entire flight, and they can figure out what went wrong with a, a plane that crashes. And this flight, whatever it was, when they got to listening to the recording of the flight, there was an idiot light that kept coming on. And the pilot would listen and, it would, and the, the thing kept saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. And he was looking out the window and he didn't see anything and he didn't understand why it was telling him to pull up. And so he just finally got tired of listening to the voice and so he switched it off. And when he switched it off, it wasn't but a few more minutes that he should have pulled up. But he took his plane nose first right into the side of a mountain because he didn't pull up. And when the people that did the inspect or the investigation and they started listening to that, why didn't he listen to the warning sign? Why didn't he listen to that voice that kept saying, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up? He silenced it. Your guilt goes from healthy to unhealthy when you silence it. I know I'm guilty, God. I need you. But I'm just going to ignore that guilt and I'm just going to bury it and just keep doing what I want to do. And because the majority of us are stubborn as mules, it takes God running us sometimes into the side of a mountain in order to get our attention. And then we wonder why God didn't take care of us when all the time he was speaking, pull up, pull up, pull up, and we silenced what he was speaking to us. It comes out in shouted guilt. I believe, and I maybe can't prove this, but this is my philosophy that the vast majority of people that shout back at you in anger are not shouting anger towards you. They end up shouting anger towards them and their situation. They're just expressing it unto you. Because guilt tends to be, can be a shouted, it's either silenced or shouted. You either push it down and push it down until it explodes or you let it just go. And usually you say, well, that's just me. (laughs) And what ends up happening is you've just put a dump truck of trash on somebody's shoulders because you've just let it go. You've just opened your mouth and let it rip, not even realizing what you're doing. And you're doing it because you're probably, without even realizing it, guilty about the situation that you're in. And now you've been confronted and now things are facing and the heat's right. And so instead of acknowledging your role in the mess, you just spout off and you just begin to shout and you just begin to rip into somebody. And what you're really doing is you're taking your guilt and you're creating in them a root of bitterness because they may or may not deserve it. Usually they don't. Well, always they don't. Because Randy taught us today, judge not that you be not judged. They, they don't deserve it. We may think they do, but what they deserve is you praying for them. And you can't shout guilt and pray at the same time. You can't shout guilt 
and love at the same time. And then the third one is manipulative. People that manipulate situations usually do so. That's usually an expression of guilt because they didn't do it the right way in the first place. And so now instead of just saying, I messed up, I didn't do it right, I'm going to work around and I'm going to manipulate the system so that I can still get there and say, well, I got there, but not the right way. And they're doing it out of guilt. Listen, you can't cut corners with God. You can't do it. The Bible says it this way, straight is the path that leads to eternal life. Not only is it straight, but it's narrow. He says, wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. Here's the thing that most people look at that concept. Because of their guilt, they look at that as God judging. Well, why do I have to go down a narrow road? Why can't I do this? And why can't I do that? Why can't I be this? And why can't I? Why do I have to give this up? And why do I have to give this up? And why do I have to be this? And why do I have to be that? Can I tell you something? The Bible says it this way. I will be in them rivers springing up into eternal life. Can I ask you what gives power to the flowing river? Is it the wide banks or is it the narrow banks? The wide banks lead to destruction. We lived in Kansas City. It's right where the Minnesota River turns just north of Kansas City. It comes south through Iowa and Nebraska and then it turns just north of Kansas City in a little town called Parkville. It's where my wife worked for several years. We had friends that lived there. It's a little outpost type of town, just a small little town and it's right down in the valley of the river and when you guys got snow up here, we got floods down there. And when the snow started melting almost every spring, the banks of the Minnesota down there would just disappear and it would be mass destruction all through Parkville to the place where one of our friends owned most of the downtown buildings and you'd walk in and they had it marked about a foot from the top of the first floor ceiling. That's where the flood was. If you remember the floods of 93. Because wide is the destruction. But you get a river that the banks become narrow. You can't even hardly tell that the river is moving when it's wide open. There's just a slow moving of the river as it builds up and goes over the banks and it floods the territory around it and it destroys everything in its wake. But I'll tell you what, you get to a place where the banks have tightened and narrowed and the rushing, gushing water that flies through it. Listen, it's not a term of judgment when the Bible says that wide is the, is the way of destruction and narrow is the way to eternal life. That's where the power is. When you narrow your road, when you narrow the flow of the Spirit in you, it becomes a powerhouse that leads you to glory. So why not give up something that's way outside the banks and live with inside the banks. They don't call it river rapid rafting for nothing. 
Because you can go to the widest part of the river and you'll just be in a lazy river. But you get to the narrow, hold on for the excitement of the rapids. But here's the neat thing about all of this. And this is what God wanted me to give to you today. As irrational as guilt is, because guilt is irrational. It's real, but it's not rational when it becomes negative. It's rational when we realize, yeah, I've messed up, I better take care of it. When we feel that guilt, when it draws us to God, when conviction sets in, it's rational because he's the only one that can handle it. It's irrational when we try to handle it. When we let condemnation come in and condemnation drives us away from God, that's irrational. It's irrational to let it eat at us. It's irrational to reject the blood of Christ. It's irrational to, 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 to take the words of the Lord that said he has, whom the son has set free is free indeed and look back at him and say, yeah, but I'm still guilty so I'm not gonna literally take your freedom, Lord. I'm just gonna dwell in my guilt. It's irrational. It's irrational. Think about the rationality of what you and I think of sometimes. Here's a God that spoke everything into existence. Here's a God that loved us so much that the Bible says in verse 14 of John 1, he became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. This is the God that said, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to suffer and die for you. This is, this is, how irrational is it to dwell in condemnation of guilt when it's, he, when, when the Bible says that when we were yet sinners, he died for us. How irrational is it for us to put up our spreadsheet and say, this is what God has done, but I can't get over what I've done. How irrational is it to sit with your pros and cons of, of, of serving God and, and God saying, I will give you peace. I will give you everlasting life. I will bring joy into your life. I will bring contentment into your life. I, but God, that's not good enough for me because I want to dwell in my guilt. Because I know how much I've messed up. I know how no good I am. I I know how degraded I have become. I've messed up too many times for you to even love me. It's irrational. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because he said it this way, I have loved you and I still do. He didn't use those terms. He used King James Version. He said it this way. Let whosoever will come unto me. Whosoever. That means you. You see, as irrational 
as our guilt is, his forgiveness is more irrational. Why would he forgive us? Because he wants to. It doesn't make sense. I have treated him like the gum on the bottom of my shoe so many times. I have tried to live my life on my own. I have tried to make my own decisions. I have tried to figure it all out. I have tried to act. I have tried to do. And the whole time I'm doing it, what I'm really saying is, God, I don't need you. Until I realize I really do. And then I come crawling to him one more time. And he still forgives me. It's irrational. The Bible said, we read it today, we've all got guilt. We've all got sin. And yet the Bible doesn't stop there, thankfully. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were guilty are now declared innocent. The theological term is justified. Can I just tell you, can, you, can I have about three, four more minutes? Listen, it declares you to be innocent. It does not make you innocent. There is a difference. He declares you to be innocent and not guilty because while you are guilty and deserve to pay the price, he is saying, no, 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 no. I am going to declare you innocent and I am going to pay the price for you. And when you sit over here and you hear the words that the Lord says that yes, you are guilty, we cut off the rest of the word that says, but I'm declaring you to be innocent because I am paying the price for your guilt at Calvary. You are not a guilty party if you have come under the blood of the cross. So stop acting like the guilty party and start acting like the free person that God has designed you to be. There's four phases of forgiveness. I invite you to stand, give you some hope here. The first phase is awareness. Awareness of the need for forgiveness is related to judgment. When you know you're guilty and you need judgment, you're aware of it. Don't stop in phase one. There's all kinds of people that are trying to live their life in the phase one of forgiveness where they are aware that they need forgiveness but that's where they stop and it locks them in place because the second phase of forgiveness is change and that relates to vulnerability. Nobody likes that word. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. Even in the presence of God, nobody wants to be vulnerable. But if you are aware of your need for forgiveness, and you step into a season of change which makes you vulnerable to the hand and the moving of God that says, yeah, you don't have it all together. Let me help you. Yeah, God, I'm kind of worthless on my own. 
I'll be vulnerable. Switch what you need to switch. Delete what you need to delete. Add what you need to add. That leads to the third phase of forgiveness, which is interaction or intimacy. I'm aware, God, that I'm a sinner. I'm aware, God, that I'm guilty and I deserve your judgment. But God, I'm stepping into your change and I'm making myself vulnerable for the blood of Calvary to overshadow all of my junk. And as it overshadows all of my junk, I'm going to step into interaction with you and I'm going to read your word and I'm going to communicate with you and I'm going to worship with you and I'm going to listen to you and obey. I am going to become intimate with you and it leads to the fourth phase of, uh, of forgiveness, which is reconciliation or trust building, if you will. So now what happens when that irrational forgiveness has its full phase? I am aware that I am junk that needs to be touched by God. I step into a season of change where I am vulnerable for God to touch me. I step into an interaction with him and have a conversation with him and that develops intimacy. And then I realize before too long of intimacy that I have now stepped into the spirit of reconciliation and I can start trusting him to hold on to the things that I cannot control. But if you get stuck in any one of those phases of forgiveness, you never get to the place where you fully trust him and allow him to maneuver in your life. So here's what God is saying today. Where do you fall? And how do you look at yourself? Are you beating yourself up because of mistakes that you've made? There's one scientist that said guilt is like putting weights on your shoulders. Guilt will keep you from sleeping at night. Guilt will give you indigestion, high blood pressure. Maybe you don't even realize you're dealing with guilt, but it's eating you up because you haven't stepped into vulnerability with God and say, God, I don't give you just a little bit. I give you every bit. And as I give you everything, I can then become intimate with you. Because here is the thing you need to know about God. God is not a taker. He is a giver. So when he takes something from you, it's because it was taking up the space for what God is trying to give to you. And he's wanting you just to give it to him so that he can give something greater to you. And when you have that intimacy with him of give and take, you start trusting in what he's doing. And so when he speaks to you, you start moving and talking and expressing 
and the lid comes off and you step into a glorious relationship with him where you are truly free. So here's my challenge today. If you are struggling with guilt, whether it's from unexpected or unrealistic expectations, whether it's from shame, whether it's from past sin, whether it's from inaccurate Bible teaching, whatever it is, and you want to make sure that that's not eating you up, would you just step into the aisle or make your way to the front? They're going to sing in just a minute. We're going to be done in just a couple of minutes. here today and you have gotten stuck in one of the transitions of forgiveness you're aware of your need but you haven't stepped into a change or you've stepped into a vulnerable position with God but you haven't stepped into the next phase of the Lord which is interaction with him and you haven't had a conversation with him about your stuff or you're stuck in your conversation you've been talking about it for weeks but you're really wanting to get it to where you just give it up to God and let God begin to 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 to, to make you and build you and and become that 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 interconnected being with you and you'd build that trust would you come are a believer that wants to see the freedom of God move in this house would you come and gather around these folks that have made themselves vulnerable in the presence of God lay your hand on their shoulder begin to pray with them and support them in the name of Jesus as they begin to sing by the authority of the word of God